Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hi, Katie. So how would you describe your relationship with your smartphone? Um, dependent. I've got a problem. <laughs> it's bad. I would use the word obsessive to describe me, probably not as much as you. but And me uh, too. So that's the focus of today's show, technology, specifically our growing dependence on it, or should I say our addiction to it. Now, we asked all of you to write in and call us with Tales from the Tech Trenches. You had a lot to say. Angie Lovejoy on Twitter wrote, I have fibromyalgia and know when I've been overusing my phone when my thumb on the phone holding hand starts to hurt. Even through the pain, I sometimes soldier through. <laughs> like it's my life's work to check social media and scroll through the news. Ouch. I, wow. I, I feel your pain. Well, I don't exactly feel your pain, Angie, but I understand where you're coming from. And Sherry Dupuy, which is a beautiful last name, on Twitter told us about the moment she knew she had a problem with tech, writing, I realized it when my children were having to ask me questions multiple times because I was engrossed in my phone. You know, we've all been there. Yes, Nalini Sang on Twitter said, I give myself tests to see how long I will go without looking at my phone, and I fail so quickly. I noticed when a friend's dad forced me to turn off my phone during a dinner. We have a sickness as I type on my phone. Listen, I agree with all of the tweets that we got about this subject. We are addicted, and we are, unfortunately, ignoring our children at times, ignoring our spouses or our friends. There's an actual term, Brian, for it. It's called fubbing, P-H-U-B-B-I-N-G. That means blowing someone off to look at your telephone, and it's so aggravating, and I'm sure it is for other people because I'm sure I do it all the time. (laughs) Never. (laughs) But... You know, it's maybe not entirely our fault because, in part, our phones and these tech platforms are designed to addict us, which we talk about in today's show. That's right. In an attention economy, that's definitely true. We also got this very interesting voicemail from a listener named Steve who tried to return to a flip phone. Hi, my name is Steve Glenn. I'm an airline pilot. And for eight months last year, I went back to a flip phone. I decided I was spending too much time on my smartphone. And so I got a Kyocera flip phone like they use in the military 
And I really enjoyed unplugging a bit and not being as accessible all the time. But I finally had to go back and buy an iPhone because, as an airline captain, I had to access the Internet and uh, access company uh, websites using my smartphone. And also, uh, texting is going to a different type of technology where people send pictures and people send files with text that you just can't do that with flip phones anymore. So I had to, my, my experiment was a failure. I had to go back to an iPhone. I try and limit my use of it uh, more than I used to, but I thought you'd like to hear that. Thank you very much. Well, Steve Glenn, a noble effort, we must say, going back to a flip phone. Uh, how Luddite-ish of you. But you can see, Brian, why that would be really hard because so much of our day-to-day activity and interactions require, a, you know, a smartphone and not a flip phone. There's even an app, Katie, called Moment, which I was scared oh, yes, to buy I have for it. a very long time. <laughs> and it tells you not only how much time you're spending on your phone, but what you're actually doing on your phone. So you kind of lie to yourself and you think, oh, I'm checking my email, and you're really on Instagram and Twitter. And then you get so, sucked into a vortex of crap. Yeah, and self-loathing for being sucked into a vortex of crap. But anyway. <laughs> it's a vicious cycle. Clearly, technology is eating up our time, attention, and changing our way of life. Loyal listeners, you may recall when we talked with psychologist Jean Twangy about the costs and consequences of endless screen time, especially for kids and teens. I encourage you all to listen to that episode if you haven't. It's number 36. But for this episode, we wanted to get into these topics from the perspective of a tech insider. And I can't think of many- Many people better on this topic, Katie, than today's guest, Tristan Harris. In his 20s, he sold his tech company to Google, and they worked there as an in-house design ethicist, of all things. Which I think many people think is probably an oxymoron when it comes to big tech companies. But The Atlantic called Tristan the closest thing Silicon Valley has to a conscience. His latest project is something called the Center for Humane Technology, which he started in February, bringing together many former insiders in the tech world who believe we need to design technology in a different, more humane way. To give you an idea, here's how the center on its website refers to Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. They say these are not neutral products. They are part of a system designed to addict us. Now, I originally spoke with Tristan for my Nacho documentary series available, gosh, on demand and ironically on YouTube, Facebook, (laughs) And Hulu. But I wanted to continue our conversation. He's such a smart guy, an excellent communicator. So for today's episode, we talk with Tristan about how tech hooks us and what ethical design means to him. And to start things off, I asked him how he landed at Google and why he left. Well, um, I was a tech entrepreneur. Um, when I was 22 out of Stanford, I started a small tech company. And um, it's a long story, but after about five or six years, we, we soft landed the company at Google. We were acquired. And after a year into being at Google, I became kind of disenchanted with where things in the tech industry were, were heading, that instead of really building tools that were empowering people, it was more and more becoming this race uh, between these different companies of getting people's attention and exploiting people's psychology. And I, I felt alarmed by this, and I was working with the Gmail team, and Gmail has its own problems with people feeling addicted. Uh, and I made this, you know, this presentation about Google's moral responsibility in shaping a billion people's attention. It was sort of a slide deck, and it exploded. I mean, it went throughout the company. Tens of thousands of people saw it. 
And um, that led to becoming a design ethicist, where I basically was asking the question, which no one had asked before, you know, how do you ethically steer a billion people's attention? We should pause you for a second, because you mentioned this slideshow. You designed this 144-page Google slide presentation, yeah. which was called a call to minimize distraction and respect users' attention. Yeah, and that was in 2013, too. I mean, this is a long time ago that this, these concerns first rose up. And you did this as a Google employee. Correct. Intending to sort of share it within your team. Right. But then I think Larry Page saw it and other senior leaders within the company. And what was the reaction to the concerns that you were raising? Yeah, I can't imagine they were super jiggy about that. <laughs> well, you know, um, I was I was nervous about that presentation because, I mean, I was ready at that time to leave the company. I, I kind of felt like this was the thing that was most concerning to me. Um, but before I left, I wanted to raise alarms about this issue. Uh, and I had a whole background prior to this on how people's minds are manipulated and influenced. When I was a kid, I was a magician. Uh, I studied at this persuasive tech lab. So I understood that technology could really manipulate people's minds. And that's why I made this presentation. So I sent it to 10 people and said, hey, I want your feedback. It was just a slide deck. Hey, give me your feedback. I went home. I came back the next morning. I checked my email. And I had like, you know, 100 emails about this presentation. And I clicked on the, you know, their, their links. And when you click on the link, it shows you... Um, inside of Google Slides, uh, the number of people who are looking at it at the same time. And there was something like 150 people that, that morning when I looked at it. Later that day, there was 400. Uh, and just through the next you know, week, it was just exploding. I mean, and I heard, heard that Larry Page had had two or three meetings that day where people brought it up in conversation with him. Uh, and so it became this kind of moment. Um, I wouldn't. I don't want to overstate its influence. I mean, I don't think it changed the course of anything, but that it, it definitely rose alarms and people started to talk about it. But you wrote something that I thought was pretty smart and prescient, which was never before in history have the decisions of a handful of designers, mostly men, white, living in San Francisco, age 25 to 35, working at three companies, that is Google, Apple, and Facebook, had so much impact on how millions of people around the world spend their attention, we should feel an enormous responsibility to get this right. True now more than ever. Yeah. Um, and so what did Google do in, in response to this, besides change your job? <laughs> um, not much. I mean, I was given this space to kind of explore these topics. I didn't get fired. I really just focused on understanding what it meant to hold that responsibility. It's not like we've ever had, there's no academic discipline, there's no university that could teach you, this is how we do manipulation of a billion people's attention. <laughs> that never existed before. So this was a new field. And so I did mostly a lot of research. Um, and in terms of things changing at Google, I tried bringing this up with some of the key products that I thought would be most important to change. So Android, because that's the home screen, the phone, the notifications that people, billions of people live by. Uh, Chrome, it's the web browser people spend most of their time in, uh, and Gmail. But it was really hard to get a concerted focus on saying we have, this is an enormously important topic. This is literally everything. And we need a whole different way of thinking about this. And I, I was unsuccessful uh, at getting getting those things to change inside Google. Well, you must have been considered such a massive disruptor, Tristan. I mean, here you are saying, hey, hold the phone, everybody, and these companies that are growing like weeds. And obviously, the concerns that you were raising were antithetical to their business model, right? 
You know, it's it's funny, Katie, because it, it wasn't an explicit, there was never an explicit response of, we can't do that, you're asking us to make less money. No, you know, it was, I never got that response. There'd this be kind of the smiling and nodding, but then no traction, no momentum, right? So I'd talk to, you know, an Android, the Android team and say, well, what if we designed it this way and we help people check their phone less? And there'd be this kind of smiling and nodding and yeah, maybe we could do that. And there's some teams that are kind of working on that. But then nothing much would really happen. There was no concerted effort. And and this is why ultimately I did leave is because I realized that there needed to be a much bigger public conversation and public demand for this stuff. But I, I will say there's a difference between Android, you know, which is the how your mobile phone works. That doesn't need to maximize how much time you spend on the phone. It's really, it's like no one goes to work at Android saying, gosh, how do we just steal everyone's time? No one says that. YouTube, on the other hand, that is their goal. I mean, that is the business model is more time watching videos equals more money for YouTube. Because uh, that so, means more attention to the advertisements. Right, exactly. That means more more attention to the advertising. Advertising is the driving business model behind this, this addiction to stealing people's attention and time. So Tristan, let's just step back for a second and talk about yep. how and why these tech companies addict us. It's gone to the point where we check our phones more than 150 times per day. Knowledge workers, on average, spend a third of their day just doing email. Um, As you said, it's sort of central to the business model of these tech platforms. So can you talk to us about, you know, how and why this happened? Yeah, well, you know, it starts by, you know, someone building an app and saying, I got to get you to use it. So what what they want is they want people you know, to register accounts. They want people to create new accounts and new users to show up. And then they want each of those accounts to come back every single day. They want you to be hooked. So they have to start finding reasons for how can I get you to come back tomorrow? So if you're Instagram and you say, okay, I have this in the early days of Instagram, I know the guys who made it, they went to school with me, Mike and Kevin, you know, and they're thinking, okay, how do we keep people coming back to this photo sharing app? And they didn't always have this feature called the number of followers you have, right? Why would they add that? We think that that's just natural. That's just the world we live in. But the number of followers we have, showing that number to you is a good way to get you to come back tomorrow because you want to know if that number went up. And you also want to know how many likes you get on each photo you post. And that's another reason to get you to come back. And so think of these as like biological organisms sitting on a table and they're mutating these new limbs, which are just these things that are good at getting you to come back and, and to stay longer. And if that thing works, it keeps that limb and it starts, it continues to evolve. And so it's involving all of these new ways, likes, um, messages, shares, uh, filters. These are all ways to keep you coming back and hooked. But what we think we miss is these cultural externalities, this entire selfie culture where, you know, young, you know, teenagers and a lot of women take these selfies over and over again of basically their their appearance. And let's say that Instagram didn't have a feature called the number of followers you have. Let's say they never went down that road. Would we have an entire culture where everyone's taking photos of themselves and posting it on social media if we didn't have the notion of followers for ourselves? I mean, these design techniques are all being done because they're good at hooking people. But downstream, they create these cultural externalities. You have people being more concerned that their self-worth is directly tied to how many likes they got in that last photo. And um, I think we're confusing a whole generation of children to attach their self-worth and belonging to the wrong place. Not just children, Tristan. I mean, I am always checking my likes on Instagram and my followers and has it gone up and, you know, what comments have I gotten? 
And on the one hand, I kind of appreciate the community that Instagram allows you to have. You do feel like you're kind of relating to people who have similar interests, and I appreciate hearing from people. But the flip side of that for me is this kind of hunger and almost frantic feeling that, oh, I need to get more followers. I need to make sure they like what I'm posting. And I'm embarrassed to admit that, but I'm a 61-year-old woman. Think about (laughs) the impact this has on teenagers who are still developing their self-esteem and sense of worth. Yeah, I think of this a lot like sugar. I mean, think of our human evolutionary instincts. I mean, sugar tastes good to all human animals. We're built to love sugar, right? There's a reason, because it used to be really rare. Um, It's just like social approval. I mean, there's a reason that it should feel good to get those likes and to get that social validation and approval. But we weren't built to get it at this level of frequency dripping into our our mind every, you know, five, 10 minutes with a new batch of notifications on our phone. Well, speaking of that, uh, two things really struck me from Katie's Nat Geo Hour on tech addiction, which is the physiological reaction to this stimulus. Mm -hmm. The stress hormone cortisol that we're getting sort of overdosed on because we feel nervous about our texts and our emails and checking them or not checking them. And then dopamine, which is this um, this pleasure... Uh, uh, neurotransmitter, yeah. Neurotransmitter, you know this, I don't. Um, that kind of gives us a high when we're getting social validation on these apps. And we're not meant, or we weren't designed to receive these two things at the level we are that's right. with the frequency we are. That's right. And I think that's how we can think about how we fix this, which is to say... We need to turn the lens back at ourselves and say, what were we built for? You know, how, how are all of our evolutionary instincts tuned and how do we respect those instincts? So a good example is something like um, a simple one that relates to phones is trigger colors. So red is a trigger color. So every single time you look at your phone and you see that red dot with the number of notifications, it's triggering you into a little bit of a, a kind of alarm or, or, or sort of, you know, grabbing your attention, like maybe I should see there's, there's something important there that I have to check into, right? But do we want to be sounding the alarm inside of our minds every single time we check our phone with notifications? You know, in the same way that social validation or social approval are really important things to care about. It's useful uh, back in the savannah to know what do my peers think of me? Otherwise, how else are you going to survive in the community or the tribe? But we weren't meant for a virtual community of tens of thousands of people around the world to be dosing us with little bits of social approval and dopamine every 10 minutes. And so I think we have to ask, how do we go back to being in alignment with how our human evolutionary instincts work? Before we even talk about that, Tristan, I want to dive in a little deeper on some of the techniques that we can be aware of and ways we're being manipulated. You mentioned the red lettering for alerts. Can you help us understand other ways they do it so we can aware be aware that we're being manipulated? Oh, man, there's just so many. Well, uh, one thing that really struck me in your writing was the bottomless bowl. Can you explain what that is? Sure. Um, you know, so a bottomless bowl, there's this study uh, that if you give people a bowl of soup and, you know, we think we're in control and we choose how much food we eat. And you give a bunch of people sitting down at a table a, bowl, a set of bowls of soup. And some of the bowls of soup... Um, are just regular. They're just you know they're all the same size, but some of the other bowls of soup have a little um, pipe at the bottom, and it's actually refilling the bowl of soup as <laughs> you're drinking it. And the question was, would the people who are drinking from the bottomless bowl notice and to stop eating? And the point of the study basically showed that 
people don't notice the bottomless bowl. Uh, and that is uh, what how our technology works. The Instagram feed and the Facebook feed and the uh, Twitter feed all scroll infinitely, right? They could choose to not do that. They could have stopping cues. Your, your mind is built for something called a stopping cue, where basically we expect that there's going to be a cue that says, okay, now this is done. And your mind kind of wakes up and figures out, what do I want to do next? But if I'm trying to hook your attention and keep you going for as long as possible, my job is to figure out how can I remove all of those stopping cues so I can keep you sucked in as long as possible. What other things other than the bottomless bowl? uh, I, I was interested that President Trump's digital campaign advisor was able to plant these ads. And of course, we're going to get into the political uses of these big tech companies in a minute, but that they could measure if red or green or blue, the different backgrounds for and yep. and and the kind of words that seem to be attracting more people and the design that would suck people in or kind of agitate them. And they were able to figure out what was the most effective way of, in essence, trashing Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I mean, this this whole, all of these systems are basically asking one question, which is, you know, how do I get your attention? And the best way to get your attention is what works on your evolutionary instincts? Does red work better on your evolutionary instincts or on your mind? Does blue work better? Does this word work better for you? If I use this political message, does that work better for you? We've reared so far away from any authentic relationship between a person trying to just talk to you versus a person sitting there scanning all of the things you've ever said on social media and trying to figure out you use, um, whenever you talk about a concept like immigration, you always use these three adjectives. And let's say they're positive or they're negative, right? Now, if I'm a political advertiser, what do I want to do to manipulate you? Well, I want to use your own words back to you so you most agree with me. So I'm going to start repeating your own viewpoints, your own opinions back at you with your exact word choices so you nod your head in agreement like, man, that person really understands me. And what we've created with social media and Facebook beyond the addiction layer, the addiction just sets up the kind of matrix so everyone's jacked in. So now the moment they wake up in the morning, their thoughts are being sort of influenced by these phones. The second layer is that we've sold that to the highest bidder because of advertising And we've enabled anyone to go in there and say, I can target the precise messages that will resonate with your specific mind. And that's exactly what Cambridge Analytica uh, was in the last election. They were trying to sell campaigns on on the, the ability to specifically persuade people using the things that would be most persuasive per mind. So they'd have a profile that your mind is influenced um, you know, more by authority. If I tell you that the New York Times said this was true, then you're really likely to believe it. Or if I told you that Fox News said this was true, then you're really likely to believe it. Um, these are all different ways of influencing people. You know, I think we have to realize that all of our minds can be influenced. That's what I learned as a magician. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter what language you speak. Magic and sleight of hand works on every single mind. And what we just enabled is this, you know, arms race for anybody to go in there and do what they want. It's time to take a quick break. We'll be back with Tristan Harris right after this. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. 
some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And now back to our conversation with Tristan Harris. Can you talk about how tech in general and social media in particular have had a corrosive impact on people's perceptions of the news and the issues and basically all of these things we've spoken about since Donald Trump became a candidate? Yeah, well... Oftentimes, people think that these feeds, you know, what what pop, what shows up inside of your feed is just whatever your friends post. So it's just a neutral tool. But this is not true. When you open up that Facebook feed, there's actually thousands and thousands of things they could show you. And out of those thousand things, they try to figure out what will be most likely to get you to click, to watch, or to share, or to like. And it turns out that outrage is really good at getting you to click and to share because you want to tell other people, I can't believe the thing that these guys, these politicians did, you know, today. And so those things enter at the top of everyone's feed. So now everybody's going to these feeds and the computers, not humans, are selecting out of all the thousands of things, the outrageous things. And what that creates are these waves of outrage inside of all these human animals. We have these, you know, human evolutionary instincts and you turn your phone over in the morning And instead of feeling calm and opening your eyes and taking a breath and asking, like, what are my dreams or what are my hopes for today or what am I grateful for or what do I want to do? What am I going to have for breakfast? What am I going to have for (laughs) breakfast? You know, you instead, the first thing you do when you set off your, turn off your alarm after your phone vibrates is you open up one of these feeds and suddenly your mind is like filled with outrage. Screw those Democrats. That's what you wake up to. Exactly. And we have to ask, I mean, it's like this totalizing... On, on, it's on both sides. That's the thing is everyone is influenced by this, which is why it should be a unifying issue, right? I, I think that no one wants this to happen 
to politics. I mean, once you sort of see where this is all going, we don't want to live in a society that's just triggered and filled with outrage or that's manipulating kids from the first moment they wake up in the morning and they see photo after photo after photo of their friends having fun without them. I mean, it's always true that people are having fun without us. But (laughs) the question is, do I fill your day and your morning with evidence of that? Do I just make you believe that's the only thing that's going on? I mean, this is crazy. I agree, and I think it's so corrosive for kids in general. You know, when you see that the suicide rate for teenage girls has, I think, tripled in the last 10 years, and if you look at anxiety being the number one mental health disorder in this country, isolation being one of the biggest problems, it's so ironic in an era when we're all connected, we've never been so lonely. Yeah. Well, and I think Sherry Turkle was just so prescient with her book Alone Together about this that, you know, giving having the virtual experience of connection, of seeing all these people, doesn't mean that as an animal, sitting there with the body, right, and breathing, that we don't need that physical presence, right? It feels a lot better to be physically present with someone than to sit the entire day on a screen getting that virtual form of presence. Can I ask you, Tristan, a little more about like a firm like Cambridge Analytica? Because I don't think people fully understand how these firms or even tech companies are able to kind of gather, absorb these this information, highly personalized information, and then mm-hmm. spew stuff out at you. So if I'm talking on my phone with a friend about the fact that I really want to buy a new winter coat, Mm-hmm. Can they pick that up and then start sending me ads for winter coats? Because that's happened to a couple of my friends. They've experimented. They talked about Emmy Rossum just for fun mm-hmm. to see if suddenly they'd get all this stuff about Emmy Rossum, who I really love, and I think she's a great person. No no <laughs> diss on Emmy. But she got started getting all this information about Emmy Rossum. So that, to me, is super creepy. I mean, mm-hmm. how do they find out all this stuff about us? Well, I mean— Especially Facebook. I mean, the, their business. I mean, how much have you paid for your Facebook account? Zero dollars, but we're paying in our attention, obviously. Well, that's interesting, right? So we don't pay for Facebook. So the question is, who is paying them? And it's the advertiser, which means that all those people who go to work at Facebook, as much as they say, hey, are, we want to make the world more open and connected, I'm sorry, but if your business model is serving not people, but the business model is serving advertisers, then guess what? All of that information over time is going to be used more and more to make the advertisers more successful. Otherwise, those advertisers aren't going to spend their money on Facebook. So in the long run, Facebook has to be you know, helping their advertisers be successful. And what that's going to mean is enabling them to access um, more and more personal information when they target uh, you know, ads to you. And so when you send a message to someone else on Facebook, you know, it'll pick up those keywords and that'll be part of the way that it starts to target and enabling advertisers to target you over time. Well, let's talk about Facebook in particular for a second. Facebook owns Instagram. Um, We sometimes use the euphemism of social media companies, different technology platforms. But so many of them are really just Facebook. Yeah, I think we're really, in large part, just talking about Facebook. So the question is, is Facebook the worst offender here? Are they doing things that are qualitatively different and more harmful than Google, for example? Um, yeah, I think the challenge is, it's just to ground for a second, just how many people use Facebook? There's more than 2 billion people on Facebook. That's more than a quarter of the world's population. Um, that's about the number of notional followers of Christianity who every day are jacked into this system where they start looking at a feed and their thoughts get 
you know, start flowing into them from these one, from this one company in California, you know, with a handful of engineers who make the design and algorithm decisions. And so the, the reason I say that is that no matter what Facebook does, it's creating exponentially complex consequences for 2 billion people. So, you know, how many engineers speak at Facebook speak Burmese? I mean, I don't know, one, zero maybe. And yet uh, Facebook is the number one way for people in Burma to access the internet. Facebook is the internet if you're in Burma. And it started amplifying genocides in Burma because it was amplifying this fake news about a specific minority group. So the point is that they can't rein in this machine that they've created. They've created this automated machine that because there's no humans there figuring out which thoughts should we put in people's minds, it's just the machines calculating what it should put in people's minds based on what's most engaging. And it's starting to push thoughts into people's minds in elections and in democracies around the world in languages that the engineers at California and Menlo Park, they don't even speak. And so they've created this kind of monster that they no longer control. So now what's going on is they're trying to go back and say, how do we rein this thing in? How do we quickly you know, throw all the firefighters at this thing and try to save it as much as possible? But I think the challenge is we trusted them to try and be thoughtful about this whole thing. And they didn't see from the very beginning that this is the level of influence they had, that they aren't just, you know, helping us keep in touch with our friends. They're a political actor. They're steering elections. They're creating addictions. They're making people lonely. I know that uh, some activists in Myanmar wrote a letter to Mark Zuckerberg about this, about the very thing that you were describing in Burma, and he wrote them back personally. But, you know, to your point, all the people in the world, it's impossible to monitor these things, isn't it? So before we talk about what Facebook can and cannot do, let me ask you about Mark Zuckerberg's testimony, because I'm sure you watched it with a great amount of interest. Um, mm-hmm. What did you think about it? And did you think he was questioned vigorously enough by members of Congress, you know, some of whom still have flip phones? <laughs> well, I think that is the issue fundamentally. It is clear that, you know, the modern realities of how technology companies work have far outpaced the governance capacity of really probably any government to stay in touch with, you know, all of the ways that these things are working and evolved in the business model. And, you know, we were involved in the November 1st hearings, um, I, myself and a few other people at briefing major Congress members. Unfortunately, there wasn't as much time for these latest hearings. And I think it came across as, you know, a whole hodgepodge of issues. Some people were asking about privacy. Some people were asking about housing discrimination ads. Some people were asking about election integrity, data breaches, Cambridge Analytica. So to the average person, it feels like, oh man, this is about just a bunch of unrelated things. But I actually want to reframe that. The reason why it felt like it's about a bunch of unrelated things and that these harms are showing up everywhere is because Facebook affects every part of society. It affects election campaign pricing. It affects housing discrimination ads where some groups get discriminated by over others. It affects elections. It affects people's privacy. And I think the problem is, if you think about Facebook as almost like a global government, I mean, how much power does Mark Zuckerberg have, even over someone like President Trump, at controlling people's thoughts and actions, right? I mean, you could argue that he has more power that's completely unaccountable, except to him, since he's the major shareholder, at doing whatever he wants, and we're sort of left to, you know, his moral compass and whatever happens, you know, to be running between the his eyes and ears as the way he's thinking about this. Well, what did you think of his testimony? Well, I, you know, I thought he was dodging the fundamental issue, which is that the business model 
of advertising and, and keeping people engaged is the problem. All of these issues come down to that one issue. And so he was trying to distract Congress from that core issue, that the business model is what incentivizes them to offer better ways for advertisers to take people's personal information and target against it and offer better and better ways to keep people hooked on Facebook for as long as possible. And it's also a little misleading when he said that they don't sell data to anyone because what they actually do is they allow advertisers to micro-target people based on their data. So even though the advertisers themselves don't see the data, they get all the benefits of that data. That's right. And, and, And Facebook's quick to sort of you know, smirk when Congress asks them, why do you sell people's data? Because they don't do that. But the point is that it is equivalently the same because advertisers are paying Facebook not to own and access your data, not to use it and then spread it somewhere else, but they're paying to target ads specifically to those people. You can go on Facebook and you can target um, conspiracy theorists by knowing what keywords they tend to identify with. So are you saying that until and unless Facebook changes its fundamental business model, the problem can't be solved? That's that's right. And the thing is that we can't change their business model overnight, and they can't change their business model overnight, even if actually they saw these issues. So I know that there's a lot of work, and we should celebrate the work that they are trying to do right now to try and peel away the problem against their own financial interests. And I think that there's some authentic things that they're doing there. But the question is, there's an upper bound to that. And and do they see that the fundamental heart of all of these problems comes down to their business model? They're not on our team. They're not on democracy's team to help strengthen the fabric of society. So long as the people who pay them are the advertisers, they're they're not going to be able to solve these problems. So if you were Mark Zuckerberg and you were in charge of Facebook, what would you be doing to put Facebook back on the side of democracy and the American people and everything that's good and just in the world. The first thing I would do isn't just say I'm sorry and there's this one bad actor way over there in the corner called Cambridge Analytica, but Facebook is fine. I would tell the world, I'm sorry that I didn't see that our business model was so corrosive and I feel bad about that. And now what we're going to do is start a transition plan to get off of this business model. And here's how we're going to do that. And here's how much time it's going to take. It's not going to happen instantly, but here's how we're going to work on that. Here's why. And hey, shareholders, here's why we're going to be regulated if we don't do this in the long run anyway. And I would start with that. I was going to say, Tristan, though, won't another behemoth just take Facebook's place? I mean, I hate to say it, but when it comes to to Profits versus ethics. Profits usually win, don't they? That That's right. But that's all based on consumer demand. So right now, there's essentially Facebook is a monopoly. Um, and it's a new species of monopoly because all of our antitrust, anti-monopoly laws are about, um, uh, they don't handle zero price monopolies. Usually a monopoly is they price discriminate. So they can control pricing. They can offer one price to you and no different price to someone else. And no one can stop them because you know, they're a monopoly. The challenge here is it's a monopoly that's free. So all of our antitrust law that's normally about regulating these things doesn't handle free monopolies. And so I think if we change consumer demand and people realize that Facebook doesn't have our best interests at heart, and it never will unless they change their business model, then we're starting to see this movement where people do want an alternative. We're not there yet, but I think slowly that's what's happening. I don't know, you know, sorry to play devil's advocate for a moment, but it seems to me, Tristan, that a lot of this depends on consumer demand or lack thereof. 
And there was a big thing, oh, you know, people were going to quit Facebook. Well, to quote Brokeback Mountain, I just can't quit you, Facebook. I mean, it's really, (laughs) really hard because people are so addicted to live without it. And furthermore, there was an interesting piece in the New York Times by my friend Andrew Ross Sorkin. And the headline was, our privacy has eroded. We're okay with that. I mean, don't you think that people, it's sort of like being a frog in a slowly boiling pot of water. People have become, you know, complacent and inured to it and have pretty much accepted this is the new normal. Well, I, I, I would frame it a little bit differently. I would say that it's a testament to how much of a fabric, a basic fabric of our lives it's become that we can't just delete Facebook. So when I say this, I'm not saying that consumer demand is going to change and everyone's just going to quit because, you know, in fact, people I know at Facebook say with a smug on their face, well, if you don't like the product, just use a different product. It's like, okay, great. So I'll just switch to that other 2 billion person social network. That's so, that's right there to my right. You know, it doesn't exist. And right now what we need to do is change the kind of, um, the government and, and consumer context so that those alternatives can start to emerge. So it becomes harder and harder for them to innovate and we need to make it easier for the alternatives to exist because we're not going to quit. I mean, I still use uh, Facebook every day um, because it's the be- it's the only way I can get my ideas out to a large enough audience. Right. And that speaks to the amount of power that they have, right? It's not, and the key thing here is also that it's not just an addiction. They, they've really taken over the fundamental communications fabric and the fabric of staying in touch with the people that matter to us. We don't have an alternative, and that's why people aren't just going to delete it. But that doesn't mean people don't have a problem with it. But aren't there some good things about it? I mean, about social media writ large, not just Facebook, but all these different modalities in terms of like galvanizing people, getting like-minded people to stand up and want more sensible gun laws, for example, or start, you know, stopping genocide in different places because there's kind of a grassroots uprising. Uh, The fact that, yes, we're lonely, but it is nice to be able to look at video of your grandchild if you live far away. I mean, I can think of countless examples of the positive impact this is and, having. I mean, you're such a Debbie Downer. Is there anything that you think is good about it? <laughs> well, I think this is this is such a critical thing because this this conversation uh, often makes it seem as if there's this all or nothing choice. Like either we have Facebook and we we have these these benefits and these costs, or we just don't use Facebook at all. And the question is, is there a middle way? And as I, I said this in my TED talk, that it's like, you know, we can have social movements that take off with positive messages without most of the time creating viral outrage most of the time. I mean, these positive social movements are very, very rare in comparison to the daily outrage that we experience on these things. The experience of knowing that your friend is you haven't seen for 10 years is also visiting a city, um, that you find out about that only because you had a Facebook account, that experience is great, but it's very, very, very rare compared to all the time people spend sort of just mindlessly browsing and, and they self-report regretting. And I think there's a different way to design all of this stuff. And that's, that's by the way, what we're trying to do with our, with our work with the Center for Humane Technology is show that there actually is a different way to design these products that's not an all-or-nothing choice. So what does a good Facebook look like? Is it a subscription model where advertisers wouldn't be on the platform, that people would pay to use it, and therefore the business of social media isn't about capturing as much of our attention as possible? Yeah, think of it like a utility. I mean, um, you know, um, we would we would pay to have access to a service that's all about benefiting our lives. So what I mean by that is 
Right now, if you walked, I mean, if you walked into Facebook today and you just interviewed a random sample of people and you said, what are you doing with your time today? You as an engineer at Facebook. And you would find every engineer is basically on one goal, which is, am I keeping people engaged, scrolling, clicking, liking, hooked, or not? They're only concerned with that goal. And instead, imagine we, we paid for Facebook. All those engineers go to work and they ask, how do we generate positive benefits in society? How do we make this a resource? And Mark Zuckerberg himself, back in 2005, used to talk about Facebook as a social utility. He didn't try to defend this stuff about news feeds and content and all this kind of stuff, which that came later after they hinged their success on the advertising model. Before that, it was a utility. It was an address book. It was something I could use to make things happen in my life. And I think if we paid for Facebook, you don't just see news feeds without the ads. I'm talking about a radically different service that is entirely built as a utility to empower us to make new social choices together that we wouldn't be able to make without Facebook. Things like, oh, I can find out when my best friend is visiting town that I haven't seen in 10 years. Um, I can have strangers uh, who, when they move to a new city, they can quickly find the groups that they can be in touch with. But it wouldn't be built around news feeds and mindless consumption, which is what it's built around now. I want to ask about fake news because, listen, these seem to be long-term goals, Tristan, but, you know, we have an important midterm elections coming up uh, in November, a hugely important presidential election coming up in 2020. Um, and so what immediately, what can be done about the proliferation of fake news, these bots, Russian influence and what we're seeing and, and general chaos when it comes to this platform in general? Yeah. The thing that people should understand is, you know, if I ask you the question, how much more confident do you feel today, if an election was to be held, that it is less vulnerable to outside manipulation and influence than it was in 2016? Like 0.0. Correct. These platforms are still highly, highly vulnerable to not just Russia, but any state and even non-state actors, China, North Korea, Iran, the playbook is now out there, and now anyone can spend money on Facebook to target information to the audiences that they want. And it's not just the ads, by the way. There's loads of other techniques. I work with ex-intelligence people that know about those techniques. And it's still 100% possible to create impersonation accounts, to create fake uh, images that are, don't, don't exist, these deep fakes where you can fake pe videos of people saying things they didn't, they didn't say. All this is going to get worse, which is why we're doing this work. This is the short term, as you said, Katie, is uh, if you care about the integrity of our elections and our democracy, then you ought to care about how these platforms reform their practices to better protect them from manipulation. Is awareness part of the solution, though? I feel like, you know, I had a good friend, I've mentioned this a couple of times on our podcast, who got this video and sent it to me about Huma Abedin and her connections to the Muslim Brotherhood, and she was appalled, and have you seen this? And I said, Dana, this is bullshit. This is not true stuff. But it was so professionally done. And yeah. do you think that people are at least more skeptical and are kind of more uh, educated in terms of their consumption of this kind of thing? Or are, am I just a little more sophisticated than your average consumer? Well, I'm very worried about this because often we have this feeling that, well, I'm the smart one, and it's only those very persuadable persons way over there that were <laughs> yeah, influenced by I, Russia, I but not me. I pretty much always had that feeling. 
Right. Well, <laughs> and here, as a magician, as a kid, you realize that everyone feels that way. Like, no, no, no. I, I'm, you know, mag- magic's only going to work on those dumb people, you know, who don't who aren't educated. <laughs> but I have a PhD, so therefore, I'm not manipulated. It's actually the opposite. Usually, the people who are most confident are the ones who are much easier to manipulate. And the well, you know, we didn't always see society that way. Back in the 1940s, um, the United States government. Uh, created, you know, the Committee for National Morale. Uh, and there was also the Institute for Propaganda Analysis to protect the American uh, psyche from foreign influence. We recognized fundamentally how vulnerable our population was to outside influence. And we actually made it a government campaign funded to make make sure there was large public awareness campaigns. And I think Facebook and other companies need to do much better and step up their job and spend millions and millions of dollars on making sure people are aware of these conspiracy theories and these deliberate campaigns because we're very vulnerable. So we need some more awareness for sure, but we also need the platforms to crack down on the ways that they continue to be uh, vulnerable to outside influence. So what you're saying is that for all the rhetoric, Facebook really hasn't cleaned up the problem of fake news and foreign influence, and it could have as profound an effect this year as it did in 2016. It could totally have as profound an effect this year as in 2016. Now, I do want to say there's a lot of people working really hard, I'm sure, at Facebook and at Twitter to try and clean this up. My point is just that they're not nearly close enough to make us feel confident about our elections not being manipulated. And so to close the gap, I think we need to be highly aware and spread this message to everybody we know that these conspiracy theories are going to be very compelling and look very true, and they'll spread really quickly. But we're going to need, you know, there's a reason we have a five-second delay on television. You know, we don't want to just automatically broadcast everything instantly to millions of people and have it reshared that fast through networks. Would Donald Trump have been elected president without Facebook? No. And I'm not saying that with a political, specific political bias. I can just tell you that from the perspective of how media works, social media was critical to his election. That's pretty chilling. What about artificial intelligence, Tristan? How concerned are you about that and this trend to give more and more decision-making authority to robots or to you know, algorithms or to technology in general versus having some kind of human judgment involved. Yeah. This is really the critical thing. We we think of artificial intelligence. People think of the Terminator movies and Arnold Schwarzenegger and, you know, death bots or something like that. And they think it's all about the future. Oh, in the future, we'll worry that AI is going to kill everybody or something like that. And what this misses is that we already live inside of a system that is governed and run by artificial intelligence algorithms. And that's because when you open up a Facebook newsfeed, that's an AI. It's trying to figure out what can I show you that's going to keep you hooked. When you open up YouTube and you wake up two hours later saying, what the hell just happened with my time? The reason (laughs) was because it was playing, it was an AI that was playing chess against your mind. Think of your mind as a chessboard. And you can, it's sitting there and it thinks it knows what it wants to do and what your goals it has. But YouTube's sitting there trying to play chess against your mind, asking, what are the videos I can put on autoplay next that'll keep you on here for as long as possible? And just like when Gary Kasparov played the AI at chess and 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 Gary lost, it's because the AI was seeing way more moves ahead on the chessboard than Gary could see. And at some point, it can see so many moves ahead that it's done. It's, It's checkmate against humanity. And the issue that we have right now is that when you land on YouTube, and it sees that many more moves ahead, it's not aligned with our goals. And YouTube also drove 15 billion views to Alex Jones' conspiracy theory videos on its own using AI. So we already have an AI problem right now, which is why it's so critical to bring awareness to these issues. 
In closing, Tristan, what are steps that all of us can take to protect ourselves from being manipulated by tech? Until and protect unless, our kids from getting addicted, too. Exactly. Until and unless these companies fix themselves, what can we do in the interim to, to protect ourselves as much as we can? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, we don't want to wait five years for tech companies to finally come around. So we have to have choices we can make right now. And the good news is we can. Um, a bunch of these, by the way, are on our website, uh, humanetech.com. Um, but, you know, you can do things like turn off all notifications. Most people don't realize that notifications on your phone are mostly invented by machines trying to find a way to get you coming back, saying, oh, 10 new friends posted some likes over here. Don't you want to see what those are? Just turn all of that stuff off. Try to make as many notifications on your phone off as possible. Um, when I say this, you'll hear it, but you probably won't do it. So actually consider, what you know? can I turn off notifications? Am I willing to make that step? I, I really recommend it. Another thing is setting your phone to grayscale. If you feel really addicted, every time you turn your phone over and you see those colors, it's lighting up some of that dopamine rewards just even if by looking at it. And if you set your phone to grayscale, it sort of cuts out about 15% of that like addictive feeling. And how it's, how it's do really you do that, a lot of by the way, just so our listeners know? Yeah, you go into, uh, your, on an iPhone, you go into general uh, settings and then general and then accessibility and you scroll all the way to the bottom to accessibility shortcut. <laughs> they make they it don't really want easy you to find you. it. <laughs> well, this is a good example. And this is where Apple, you know, when the new iPhone comes out in a few months, that they can make this a lot easier for people. But I, I really recommend just not using social media, uh, just, you know, in, uh, at least uninstalling it from your phone and only using it when you're on a desktop. Um, and, oh, God. Uh, you oh, know, that, just, that'll never happen for that'll me. That'll be Tristan. hard. By the way, I did do that uh, with Facebook. I should probably do it with Instagram as well. Um, Twitter, I couldn't give up. But <laughs> it, it made a huge difference in my life not to have Facebook on my phone. I, I tried say. to turn my phone screen to black and white per Tristan's recommendation. That lasted about 15 minutes because I missed it. I was like, the world just doesn't feel good with a black <laughs> and white phone. See, I, what's my problem, Tristan? No, you don't have a problem, Katie. No, the thing is that um, I think people need to be able to switch. <laughs> she has a couple problems. <laughs> I think the thing is people need to be able to switch it back and forth between color and black and white. The point isn't to stay in black and white all the time. It's just that um, you know, keep it in black and white by default, uh, because then you you actually get used to it. You actually it starts to feel overwhelming to see color. It feels like whoa, that's that's too much, and that's kind of where you want to be is to remind yourself that this is a tool in my pocket. It's only a tool, and I want to make sure I'm putting it in its place. That that's the role I want it to serve, and black and white can be a helpful reminder. And what about for kids, real quickly, Tristan? Because a lot of our listeners have children or grandchildren. I find that it's quite depressing when I see parents at the park or playground. They're so, you know, they have, they're so busy looking at their phone. And, and I'm not being judgy here because I probably would be doing the same thing if my kids were younger. But they are not interacting with their kids in the same way. And it's, yeah. or people having dinner. I, I don't know. I'm sure you all have seen this. Nothing is more depressing than to see a couple at a nice restaurant on their phones or even a family. I get so bummed out. And again, I'm not being judgy, listeners, but it just, it just, I don't know. There's something about it that just makes me incredibly sad. You know, this is the conversation. I mean, this is the culture that we're, that these design choices are creating. And, um, you know, this is going to be up to us in the short term to realize, is this the society we want to live in? Is this how, is this who we are? Um, and I think that that's a question that all parents have to start asking themselves. Um, and you can use the tips that we just talked about in the meantime to try and use it less. 
And well, finally, finally, there are a couple of apps that you recommend to make this easier for all of us. Can you just briefly talk about some of those? Uh, yeah, you can download and install Moment, uh, which is an app for the iPhone that tracks how much time you spend. You know, I mean, that helps to sort of see and get a picture of where your time is going. But I do really think that the much better thing is simply to look at your phone and, and you know, delete most of the apps you're not using, turn off notifications, set it to black and white. Um, there's a couple other tips on on the website it, it can really make a big difference. And just simply being aware of this can change your relationship to it. And, and you know, I think that realizing that you're missing out on life, talk about not being present, whether it means staring at your phone when you're in a new city and you don't even notice your surroundings or not ever being bored, which is the key to creativity. In this hour I did, Tristan, where you're, you're featured, one of the things I realized and thought about is, the part of our prefrontal cortex that allows us to be creative, that fires up when we have a creative thought, cannot really operate or function when we're constantly distracted by our phone. So, you know, every moment, whether it's driving, you know, if you're in the passenger seat of a car or you're just, you know, waiting, nobody ever has this time to just sit and think. And that is absolutely key to being creative and coming up with ideas and having epiphanies of all kinds. And that's one thing I think about, too, this this constant stimulation, which only yep. increases the cortisol and doesn't allow us to have a moment where we can think and consider and contemplate things. Yep, that's exactly right. And that's why this is such an invisible problem beneath all other problems, because every choice we make in our lives is on top of the background of how our mind is feeling, thinking, uh, choosing. And how we think, feel, and choose are basically, you know, never been more influenced by how our phones shape our attention. And whether you care about creativity or mental health or loneliness, you know, we're going to be publishing something soon that's kind of a ledger of all of these negative externalities, these cultural harms on society so that people can really see it all in one place um, because the effects are so profound and so invisible. Well, I'm so proud of you raising these issues at uh, the ripe old age of 34, being— 33 still, but— <laughs> I know The Atlantic called you the closest thing Silicon Valley has to a conscience, and I really appreciate everything you're doing, the consciousness you're raising about these issues. If people want to learn more, they want to actually support what you're doing, Tristan, how can we do that? Yeah, um, just go to the website, uh, humanetech.com, which is for our Center for Humane Technology. And um, there's ways to get involved, join the community, make a donation. Um, you know, we see this as a team effort. And this is a team humanity, uh, really protecting and fighting for, for the world we want. I was more than a little freaked out after speaking with Tristan. What about you, Brian? Uh, For sure. But uh, knowledge is power, as they say. And I think it's time for a lot of us to take a hard look at our tech habits, myself included, and just how much time they're sucking up in our lives. That's true. And I think if you're just conscious of it, it does help you. And I think there are times when you can leave it at home. I know parents and people say, well, what if my kid calls? What if there's an emergency? And I feel that way, too. But... I also feel like you have to take a break from it sometimes and take a walk. Don't listen to our podcast. <laughs> well, I, wait, wait, did I just say that? But sometimes you just need to leave it at home, get outside and be untethered. Don't have it permanently, uh, you know, attached to your hand. By the way, I have a friend who has two phones, one for during the week, which has 
uh, social media and all the bells and whistles of a smartphone, and one for the weekend, which is just texting and calling in case his kids need to reach him. I thought that was an interesting idea. Must be nice to have such rich friends, Brian. Meanwhile, stop <laughs> checking your phone 150 times a day, people. Brian, I downloaded that Moment app, and the worst day, I was on my phone for, ready, nine hours. Now, in Jesus. fairness, I was sick. I had, like, the flu, and I had nothing to do but lie in bed and Read look at my phone. Read a book, Katie. I mean, my God. <laughs> well, I was watching The Crown, if, if I recall, and on my phone at the same time. And you weren't time. transfixed by The Crown? No. I can't believe it. I was. I was. And it was crazy because I had to keep rewinding it because I missed things because I'd be on my phone. Anyway, I got a lot of problems, people. That does it for this <laughs> week's show. Thanks, as usual, to our pod squad over at Stitcher. That's Gianna Palmer, Jared O'Connell, and Nora Ritchie. And thanks as well to the team over at Katie Couric Media. That would be Allison Bresnick, Emily Bina, and Beth DeMoz. Mark Phillips wrote our theme music. And Brian and I are the show's executive producers, for better or for worse. I'm under Katie Couric on social media. Instagram is where I shine, people. Brian <laughs> tweets his little heart out at Goldsmith B. Meanwhile, don't forget to call in with your stories about discrimination and gender bias at work. That number again is 929-224-4637 or drop us a line at comments at couricpodcast.com. And by the way, if you haven't already, please leave us a rating over at Apple Podcasts and be sure to subscribe to the show as well. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.